0: You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Well, I want to welcome Michelle Sanchez to the podcast. Michelle, thanks for joining us.
1: And thank you for having me, George. So very happy to be here today.
0: I just wanted to start with your story, with a little bit of your background. Could you maybe just share with with us and A little bit about you.
1: Absolutely. So um, I have a bit of a non-traditional background in that my first ever career was business. I was throughout my life very excited about making a whole lot of money and uh, working in some sort of entrepreneurial or financial field. And so um, most of my life, I Trained for that. I was a Christian, but primarily interested in making money and in doing good for myself. And that all changed uh, on 9 11 when uh, I, you know, experienced that day. I was working on Wall Street, I was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, and it completely changed my life uh, experiencing 9 11. And I felt the Lord's call into a more formal ministry. Now that process took a couple of years to really make that leap, but I did. And that's been a, an adventure these days. Uh, what I find myself doing for the kingdom of God is that I lead discipleship and evangelism for the evangelical covenant denomination. And, uh, it's been a, it's been a blast. I've been doing this for about eight years. And one of the things that really brings me a lot of joy is connecting some of the challenging areas of our culture today to discipleship, making those clear connections between following Jesus and the cultural challenges of our day. So looking forward to doing that a little bit with you today, George.
0: Well, you've written an incredible book, and it really is a series of books. You've even got a a children's book. It's, It's called Color Courageous Discipleship, and it's fantastic. And I want to jump into it. Before we do, I just wanted to kind of recognize we're headed here into June. And um, I'd love to get your thoughts on Juneteenth.
1: So I could not be more thrilled that Juneteenth has finally been adopted as a national holiday. Now, while it doesn't have a Christian base, it's not a Christian holiday or a church holiday. However, I really believe that Juneteenth gives Jesus followers the opportunity to clarify to the world where Jesus really stands when it comes to our racial challenges. And, you know, in some ways it provides a particularly perfect opportunity to do so for this moment. And here's why really what Juneteenth is all about. It's celebrating an important moment when racial freedom moved from being kind of a a concept to a more concrete reality. And so slaves had been declared free. That was true from a legal and official standpoint, the idea of their freedom and equality, but it was not a concrete reality everywhere, right? And so um, Juneteenth celebrates the day when slaves in Texas, the last Confederate holdout, were liberated by the Union Army. And this is way after the Civil War finished, but it was—it's a, a celebration of coming to a greater level of equality and freedom, um, living into what has already been stated, but maybe not fully experienced, right? And I would argue that so much of what we are facing today, when it comes to our racial challenges, is like that. You know, um, I think. There's very few people that wouldn't agree, hey, we're all created equal and we deserve equal opportunities in life. But the reality is that we're still not living up to that in actual fact. And so what can we do to close that gap? Jesus, I believe, would have us close that
0: gap. Wow. Well, I mean, just thank you for speaking into that. I think that's such an important way of seeing as Christians and important. This is, we need to be part of the conversation and really understanding these things from a kingdom perspective. So I want to i I'd just love to start now with your book. So let's talk about that. Why did you write it? And what do you hope the impact will be on its readers?
1: Well, the first thing that I love to make clear with people is this. If you had told me five years ago, hey, you're going to be writing uh, some books and they're going to be about race, I would not have believed you, George. I would never have believed you in a million years. Oh, why? You know, in the book, I tell my own story. So people can't see my face. I am African-American and clearly I've thought about race throughout my life. However, I was really raised in a kind of colorblind generation and a colorblind culture that was like, oh, you know, let's just forget about race and like, let's just focus on how we're all the same and how, you know, I can just work hard to to get the best for me in my life, right? So it was a kind of very individualistic approach to life with a downplay on race. And uh, frankly, that's even true with regard to my approach to discipleship. Most of my life I've been in predominantly white evangelical contexts. And so real excited about all the traditional discipleship categories, uh, spiritual formation and Bible reading and prayer and all these things that are super important. And I, I believe foundational, but I didn't. I I did not for years and years really make clear connections between following Jesus and resisting racism. And that is a point of growth I had to take in my own life. Mm. So these books are about making clear connections between following Jesus and resisting racism and why we still have a need for that. Really, I would say that my own personal journey was, I mean, it's been happening in little ways for years, but. Sparked like it was for so many others in 2020 after George Floyd had been killed, uh, an example among many others. But I began to ask new questions about the connection between race and discipleship. Like, okay, what does all of this individualistic discipleship stuff that I love have to do with the bigger societal problems we're facing? Why does racial inequity continue to thrive in contexts like the U.S.? where there are supposedly a lot of Christian disciples, you know, what is going on? There's clearly some kind of a hole in the way that we've been doing our discipleship. And what I came to realize is this racism is a justice issue. Clearly, absolutely. But I think the key is that even more fundamentally, it's a discipleship issue. It's a discipleship matter. It's a core element of what it means to see the kingdom come in Jesus' name. And so I wrote these these works, uh, Color Courageous Discipleship, three books across all ages and stages to help people move into making that connection in their own lives. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm called to resist racism. And and here's what that looks
0: like. Wow. One thing just sparked for me, you are coming at this issue from... An evangelism and discipleship perspective, which I think there's a uniqueness to that. When you think of both churches collectively and then individuals that are Christians, that are followers of Jesus, what steps do you think are crucial in that discipleship journey toward, you know, diversity and true solidarity?
1: Oh my goodness. There's listen, I have a I have like a chapter per step that I think is crucial, but we'll just focus on. A couple of those here. So, number one, we need to center Jesus. Okay. If we want to pursue true diversity and solidarity as Christ followers, we've got to center Jesus Christ. There is a lot of good work uh, being done out there by everyone, you know, a, a lot of great secular resources because of common grace that we can learn from and utilize. But at an even deeper level, this work is a spiritual work, I believe. And it is a kingdom work and we have resources that that we can access as followers of Christ that basically are endless, you know, boundless resources in our in our Lord to access, um, to move his kingdom forward when it comes to diversity and solidarity. So I think it's really important because it seems to me that there's been a bit of a trend of Christian people because they haven't had a lot of great maybe examples or models kind of moving away uh, from Jesus to do justice. But I think that that is a mistake and a false dichotomy. No, Jesus is the, is the king of justice. He's the founder of justice. And he has so much to say in this moment and so many resources for us. So that's one. I, first of all, um, center Jesus. If you're interested in the pursuit of justice of all kinds, another thing I would say, very important to move from colorblind to color courageous. So people ask me, okay, about the title all the time, right? Basic idea is this, I mentioned before, you know, I had a, I was raised in a colorblind kind of situation. And I think that many people have been, you know, in the post-civil rights movement, we had much progress, obviously. George, did you know we have had a Black president? Did you know that? And not just once, but twice. (laughs) Like, this is astonishing, truly astonishing, the progress that we have made, obviously, in every single field, every area of life we could see um, where incredible progress has been made. And so, you know, for a long time, people have been saying, well, yeah, you know, let's just focus on what we have in common. Let's focus, uh, let's focus on downplaying our differences, uh, in order to promote equality. And I think that there's been some good to that, but it's also limited in what it can do some good to it. Everybody is equally created in the image of God. You agree with that, George? Amen. <laughs> yes. There is an extent that we need to see everyone equally in terms of the dignity they deserve, in terms of the royalty that they hold, uh, just being created in the image of God. Amen. Absolutely. At the same time, our world is fallen, right? And the the things that make us different and that uh, are God-ordained and um, God-created, all the beautiful differences we have in a broken world lead to disparity all too often. And so the problem with being colorblind, the limit to it is that if you can't see race, you also can't see racism. If you can't see race George, you're gonna miss racism. You just won't be looking for it. You're gonna miss racial disparity uh, when it shows itself or racial bias when it subtly impacts things. And so what we're doing now, I think as a society is we're realizing, oh man, you know although we've made a lot of progress, we still um, are blind to some really important things going on uh, racially in our society that need addressing. And what I say is, okay, we've got to move then from colorblind to color courageous, which I describe as seeing color, choosing to see color for the sake of pursuing racial diversity as God loves it and intended it and dismantling racial equality, both pursuing good God-ordained diversity and dismantling evil racial disparity.
0: That's so good. That is so good. What would your hopes that this would be as an impact on churches and Christians as a contribution to this conversation, the color courageous discipleship?
1: Yeah. You know, one of the biggest contributions that I hope to make is um, there are a number of concepts that I address in the book from a Christian discipleship perspective mm. that I'm not sure I've seen as clearly framed like that before. So for example, we have, we're many of us now uh, in society and secular context, we're learning about systemic racism. Okay. People have heard about this idea of systemic inequality, systemic injustice. Okay. Well, is that just some kind of secular idea? Oh no, (laughs) we can find this in the scriptures. We can find the idea of how sin has impacted not only individuals, but also groups and um, institutions. We see governments, we see that all throughout the scriptures in different ways. And what God calls us to as disciples is to awaken to that. People use the word woke today. Unfortunately, now it's a kind of a slur, you know, but actually, the idea of awakening goes way back. To, this, to the word of God, that God calls his followers to awaken when there is injustice around us. It's possible to be following God, but be asleep in some ways. So I connect all of these ideas of awakening to um, the sin that is around us in systemic ways. That's a very biblical idea and help people make connections, right? To the challenges we face today in these newfangled words and ideas, but they actually go way back and we can engage them as disciples.
0: That's so powerful. It makes me think of the, the Exodus narrative. You know, Moses didn't say, let me go. He said, let my people. It was a community.
1: Oh. It's all over. Once you have eyes to see, George, it is all over. Yeah. Yeah. All over the scriptures.
0: Pharaoh didn't seem to want to have that conversation, but it seems to be an important conversation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that way, things don't change now, do they? A lot of people don't want to have this conversation. (laughs) Hey, you know what? I want to also give you one other example. Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. Please. Of how I frame something in the book from a discipleship perspective. So another thing that people talk about these days is unconscious bias. Yeah, you know, And they say, hey, uh, you don't have to be intentionally racist or intentionally prejudiced to actually still be acting in biased ways toward people. And what we know now is that people of all races have unconscious biases. In race and in many other areas, we know this powerfully from the research, and I give a lot of footnotes in the book, so you could check all of this out. But you know, again, oh, unconscious bias—this is just some, you know, new psychological, sociological fad, right? No, my friends. So in the scriptures, what we what we learn is that we are sinful people. George, did you know that?
0: Mm, amen. <laughs> We're sinful people, George.
1: We we. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and truly that sin, that brokenness has impacted everything about us. Okay, so theologians talk about something called the noetic effect of sin, noetic. Essentially that noetic is referring to our thought processes. So it's saying because of the fall, because of the way sin has impacted us, even the way we think about things, you know, it is imperfect. It's tainted. It's um not straight in a way. It's, it's biased. It's crooked. And so we shouldn't be surprised to, to learn that, well, wow, most of us do have biases that show themselves even when we don't want them to, right?
0: I just have to, isn't it so interesting that some people, sometimes theologians and Christians who have the strongest theology about sin and like have huge emphasis on depravity and sin, Have such a strong trust in their own logic (laughs) that (laughs) (laughs) it, which almost that sounds a little like broken logic to me for some reason. But anyways, keep going. I'm sorry, I digress. I
1: know, and that's 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 all part of it. And you know, in the chapter where I talk about um, understanding unconscious bias from a Christian perspective. I end that chapter with talking about, okay, what we need to do is take off our biases and put on the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. And in the scriptures, the mind of Christ is primarily referred to as humility, humility. You know, wow. What, what if we could all go into every situation, understand having a kind of humility about everything really, but yes, especially race that we all have things that we can learn That we should be okay to admit we may not see things we don't understand, right? But that humility—it's like foundational because, yeah, ironically, we're we're just constantly, you know, pridefully blinded to so much, even when we know it.
0: That's so good, and it makes me. Well, this question comes up. Could you share with us maybe a model, a biblical model, to understand the layers and effects of sin?
1: Yes. So um, I do think that one of the things that is most challenging to doing this work of, of racial justice and racial reconciliation in the West has to do with how evangelicalism as a whole has been very individualistic. It's in, in its approach. And again, I'm, I'm black and I was guilty of that because it's how I was raised. Mm. So a lot of our focus is on my personal relationship with Jesus, what I can do in my individual life to strengthen that. And then maybe it extends out also to the people sort of immediately around me. So we also talk a lot about family, you know, life that we talk about marriage and emotional health. That's something too, that we've talked a lot about uh, more recently is being emotionally healthy. Well, these are things we love talking about because they're basically very personalized, individualized kinds of things. But the problem then is that we can lose sight of the ways in which the world is multi-layered here. It's got multiple levels, not just the individual level. And that sin has broken really all the levels of creation and needs to be reconciled on all the levels of creation. And so I talk about this in the, in the book using a model, just call a simple model, the four levels of creation. And just imagine four concentric circles. Okay. Four concentric circles. And at the center of that is individual. So yes, I think that foundational and key is as individuals, we need to be reconciled to God right? And we need to figure out what it looks like uh, to strengthen our relationship with him. The next circle is interpersonal. And again, we, we also like to get into this a little bit in terms of our immediate relationships, making sure that those reflect, we reflect the character of Christ to those immediately around us, but we need to move beyond that. The next circle would be systemic. And then the last one, cosmic. So systemic, this is getting, very simply to the ways in which creation is also comprised of systems and what i mean by a system is just the all the different things that we use to organize ourselves as people institutions organizations government structures you know all of these all of these systems that we just use to organize ourselves often driven by policies of various kinds these are a kind of a created thing as well that has fallen why because fallen people create them, you know, imperfect people create imperfect systems. And we also have to have eyes to see the larger systems and structures and how they may need reconciliation in Jesus as well. And and then the final one would be cosmic. And, you know, I I grew up um, Pentecostal, George, Pentecostals are okay in dealing with this level. But, you know, I said earlier that ultimately, I think that this work is a spiritual work. The work of racial reconciliation requires us to understand that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is not against flesh and blood. It is against the powers and the principalities of this world. And those can include even evil ideas and ideologies like racism that Satan uses to divide and destroy at a, again, a much larger level across uh, even generations, right? And so we have to recognize we can't just fight these with the weapons of flesh and blood. We and our enemies are not flesh and blood. Ultimately, we we have powers and principalities, greater forces of evil that we would do well uh, to stand in the power of Christ and to 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 intercede in his strength against these forces.
0: Have you as you look at this model, do you see? different Christian traditions, maybe emphasizing different aspects or layers of of the sins, the impact of sin?
1: All right, 100%. You caught on to that. So yes, um, again, I would say your, your typical evangelicals, especially of a white evangelical culture um, in America, we have loved those inner circles of individual and interpersonal. That's where we're comfortable. That's where we hang out. And we're good at it. Like we are really, really good at that, um, making personal connections with the Lord. I'd say the systemic level um, here is where a lot of our more progressive, you know, use different labels, mainline um, liberal brothers and sisters would hang out. And typically what you see there is they, they really get that systemic dimension and they are all for, you know, justice for marches for equality, for policy change, you know, so you'll hear them really spend a lot of time and energy on those topics. They've been talking about race for a long time, uh, but they may not as much talk about individual holiness. Okay. And sort of the personal uh, connection with the Lord as much as we do. And then you have, uh, yeah, the outer level, I'd say Pentecostals, right? The big movement of the last 100, 150 years or so. Basically, there is a a beautiful awareness that there is spiritual reality at play and that we're called to engage it in Christ. So here's the thing. We all need each other. I believe we need each other and that the healthiest communities are going to combine elements
0: of all. So as we kind of are looking into these layers of darkness... If we were to turn our eyes toward hope, and I mean, one of the reasons you wrote this book with Color Courageous Discipleship, how does Color Courageous Discipleship touch down in in your mind and maybe in your experience in some of these layers of darkness?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it really is a kind of simple answer. So in the scriptures, what we see is that our Lord Jesus is reconciling everything to himself. So we see the beautiful beginning of the book of Colossians is talk of like, Jesus is the head of the church, right? And God is reconciling all things in heaven on earth to him. And it names everything right from powers and principalities to creation, to individual people. It's like, this is happening. This is, this is the kingdom of God that is already not yet. It is, it is here. It is growing. It is, it is, he's at work doing this reconciliation across all things. And he calls his disciples to join him in that work. And so Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation and the call of disciples to be ambassadors of reconciliation. So for me, a holistic understanding of that would mean, yes, we are ambassadors of reconciliation, ideally somehow, some way on all of these levels as the church, right? And I think that as individuals too, um, you know, we might have different emphases that God calls us to, but We need to have that holistic understanding. Yes. I seek reconciliation with God individually. Yes. I make sure in my interpersonal relationships, I pursue forgiveness, grace, the character of Christ, humility, right? Those kinds of things interpersonally, you know, there's things in my life. I I have power, platform, uh, privilege, position. I have resources that God has given me that I can make a difference at a systemic level in some way, in some form and be a part of the solution instead of perpetuating existing problems. And of course, cosmically, we can all step into as disciples what it means to engage the powers and principalities of this world for Jesus.
0: Well, you just said there is so powerful. It makes me want to be more appreciative of people who maybe see different angles of the impacts of sin, and they maybe have a calling that is more addressing maybe a systemic area of sin, or maybe more personal and individual. Seems to me, partnership would be a lot better than partisanship in those areas.
1: Oh well, I think Jesus has been saying stuff like that for a long time too.
0: Amen. Well, I, <laughs> this is so good. I just have, I have a few more questions for you, so I'll st- I'll start with with this question from your vantage. What bright spots are you seeing in the church toward color color courageous discipleship?
1: I think, by the way, it is vitally important for us to focus on bright spots. Sometimes I get the question, like, how do you stay encouraged in this work? And what I say is the the key is to focus on the bright spots, focus on the places where you see the kingdom of God bursting through. Obviously there's many things we could be discouraged about, right? But the kingdom of God is breaking through in many places. And I think that what encourages me is the, the extent to which we see bright spots uh, occurring in places that we didn't see before. There's many, many churches and ministries that have long embraced diversity. They've they've embraced diversity in a kind of colorblind way, but now are seeing their eyes are opening to the ways in which there's more work to do. I think that for many people, it's like it's an aha, and it's a it's a it's a good thing. It's a positive and exciting thing. Like oh. You know, we're not done. And this explains, you know, some of the tensions that we may be continuing to have. So what, what really encourages me is seeing people who I know are good-hearted Christian people getting excited as they understand more deeply the work that lies ahead of us, right? And so those are the people that I, I try to really focus on and to uh, raise up so that God can use them in whatever spheres of influence they might have.
0: Amen. As you're leading toward a vision of something more beautiful, more kingdom, more Jesus-y, for lack of a better term, what are the biggest barriers you see for people?
1: Fear is a big one. Fear is a big one in so many levels. And I talk about this, you know, the scriptures are very clear that fear and love are kind of opposites of each other. Perfect love casts out fear. The one who fears is not able to be made perfect in love. The reality is like, There's a million dimensions in which that fear may manifest. One example might be, you know, the fear of making mistakes on this journey, the fear of not getting it right, the fear of being called out, you know, or canceled or something, which by the way, I'm not a fan of canceling people because I don't think Jesus did. It's something about we're, f- we're just afraid we're not going to get it right. And I would really encourage people again. No, 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 no. The idea is like, we're in the Lord's hands. We will be imperfect. We are imperfect people. We'll make mistakes. We'll learn from those mistakes, right? In fact, that's often when we learn the most and the best. When I see the disciples traveling with Jesus, they made some mistakes, George. Like they did not get everything right all the time. And guess what? You know, after a good three years working on things with Jesus, they were in they're in pretty good shape in terms of growing the church and blessing it. I think fear, the the kind of million dimensions of fear is one of the major obstacles that we see. Another one, and you know, i'll I'll finish with this with another dimension of fear, in order to really be a beloved community, to really be a beloved community, it involves agape love, which is, you know, the love that Jesus talked about. It is, a love which is sacrificial, like we need to be willing to carry the cross and love one another um, with a kind of sacrifice to it. And obviously, the cross is always scary. <laughs> the cross, you know, it is. Um, the cross is scary in a world of limited resources. You know, people are afraid to give up anything, to sacrifice anything for somebody else. It's something we resist, right? But um, again, this should be something that sounds familiar to Jesus followers call to agape love to um, tending to the interest of others above our own. This is, this is the very heart and soul of Jesus. And again, not just on an individual level, but also ethnically, you know, across races. So those are, you know, I think the many, many dimensions and expressions of fear are what stops us and an immersion and a reminder of the love of Jesus can really help.
0: For any of those listeners stuck in some form of fear like this isn't this conversation maybe they've felt or heard isn't isn't a biblical one it's not a it's not ones that christians should be part of or we should keep these things private this isn't we shouldn't dwell in the public realm in the, these areas or this is just as not important what would you what would you say to encourage someone that's maybe felt a bit stuck but they're starting to see that oh wait maybe jesus is in the middle of this
1: Whenever there's a storm, the best thing to do is to focus on our Lord earlier in this conversation. It's like, Hey, what are the steps we need to take here? And I talked about centering the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I think that there's so many aspects of the conversation that can be confusing. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, I mean, people of all kinds of worldviews and backgrounds and philosophical approaches and secular beliefs. I mean, everybody's talking about this. And making contributions in different ways. And it is true that there are some ways that a Christian perspective on racial reconciliation and racial justice may differ from secular perspectives. That is true. So I think the first thing is, yeah, just of course, you know, people who are speaking from a secular standpoint may have a very different approach. However, I would encourage you uh, first to center on Christ and what he has to say and, you know, consider. What is it that we can affirm, right? What is it um, that we have in common? Jesus had a lot to say about racial disparity. In fact, you know, he often would raise up uh, ethnically marginalized people to make a point, whether it was in right, the story of the Good Samaritan or his visit to Samaria with the disciples and the Samaritan woman. He would directly confront biases and systemic injustices all of the time. So I say, Look to Jesus, see what He has to say, and that will help you, in a sense, separate the wheat from the chaff. If there are things that you can't agree with, that is totally fine. But Jesus has words for us. He's had words for us ever since He was walking on this earth about what it means to really love one another, George. And so, so that's what I'd say. And I'd, and I'd also say that you know that is part of the reason that I did feel called to write this book because I wanted to help people understand what does it look like to really center Jesus. What is the core of what a disciple should be getting at in all of these conversations? And so um, I hope that that's a gift.
0: Could you maybe give give us a story or a, a personal example of where color blindness has impacted you and then maybe a, a a story where color courageous has impacted you?
1: There's a number of stories that I I share from a personal basis in the book. And as again, I like to make it crystal clear that actually a lot of this work is of my own journey from being colorblind to color courageous as a black person, which as you can imagine, is just a very unique kind of vantage point, but colorblindness, I, Listen, so uh, at the beginning of this conversation, I said, you know, my goal in life at one point was just, I want to make as much money as I can and take care of me. And essentially, you know, when I was growing up, my role model was Claire Huxtable from the Cosby show. I absolutely love this lady. She had five kids. She had um, an awesome job as a lawyer, plenty of money, um, beautiful townhouse in Brooklyn, and her hair was always perfect. And I thought I'm going to be Claire Huxtable. That's what I'm going to be. Right. And they were not always talking about race on the show. You know, um, this is just a family. They worked hard, they did well and all, and all is good. Right. And so, um, yeah, the Cosby show is an example of a kind of, um, colorblind world where everything is fine. As long as you work real hard and do well for yourself. I had an experience when i was working at goldman sachs where i volunteered I signed up to volunteer and teach at an inner city school and um i i did not grow up in that environment i grew up in a predominantly white uh well-resourced school because my parents we're able to take advantage of a low income housing program. So I grew up in this predominantly white situation on Long Island, New York, learned how to assimilate really well. And so that helped me, you know, for my entire life up until this moment. So I I had not been to an inner city school before. I didn't know what to expect. And I I was on the way there and I thought, great, you know, these kids are going to be like miniature versions of me. I'll just inspire them about working hard. And, you know, Being like Claire Hoxtable would be so much fun. And so I, I get to this school, of course, it's in a mostly black and brown area. And George, I could not believe the dilapidated state of this school. I could not believe crossing over the threshold that I was still in a school in the United States of America. It was dark. It was dirty, you know, things were falling apart. The classroom was sort of a, a disaster area. Um, it was way overpacked. There were kids sitting in the, in the hallway, like with their desks, trying to learn. You could barely hear. And I just remember being absolutely floored. Like, oh my gosh, like they, the resources here are awful. I was I just been here for, you know, 10 minutes and I want to escape as quickly as I can. What if I had grown up in a situation like this would, you know, would work hard, you know, would be the, be the only answer. No, I'd probably be in a very different position in my life. Right. So it's been, it was like an accumulation of experiences like that, that helped me to see, Oh, even I've been blind to some things because You know, my own family was able to escape some of the worst aspects of systemic racism. We were an exception to the rule, but there's still a rule, George. There are still terrible disparities that we've got to do something about. It helped me to see the limitations of my colorblindness, my colorblindness, George, and realize over time, like, okay, if I can open my eyes to actually see uh, the racial disparities that are still at work out there, it's painful, very painful for me to do as a black woman. But I know that I can then begin to speak out and make a difference, which is what these works of the last few years have been all about for me.
0: Wow. oh, That was so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Michelle, you'd you mentioned in 2020 in your journey of seeing the connection of some of the racial disparity questions facing our nation and our world and our communities sparked in 2020 with, with Floyd. Would you mind just sharing what, what, what did George Floyd do maybe personally and emotionally to you and your family? How did that impact you on an emotional and spiritual level?
1: What I actually felt or one of the things that I felt at that time was a kind of irrelevance, George, a kind of irrelevance. So what do I mean? I had devoted years of my life to that point as a Christian discipleship leader, studying the life of Jesus and helping people with their spiritual practices. And I realized I am unclear what the relevance of all of that is for this moment that's ridiculous. That um, probably speaks a lot to like, wow, what is this disconnection all about in me, but also in the larger body of Christ?
0: That moment, think of all the churches and all the hymns that have been sung and all the spiritual practices that have been practiced, all the Bible, all the camps, all the Bible studies that they go, go to over and over and over. And what was it worth all that, dis- that form of discipleship if 2020 hits, fighting over toilet paper, don't have yeah. compassion toward other cultures? I th- I just think every Christian leader, you just described and voiced, I think a lot, every Christian leader probably should have been feeling.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think sometimes we're spoiled because we, you know, are in a supposedly Christian context here, but reality is, you know, a lot of that's kind of cultural sheer. Like it's it's cultural aligning over us, but you know, it, it's it's still a smaller number that of people that actually really live in a Jesus' call to carry the cross and to live according to his character, so, you know, it's a reminder for us um, not to be satisfied with nominal proclamations, you know, of faith, but to really disciple people in the way of Christ,
0: so Michelle, if people want to learn more, how can they find find more of your stuff and and find you?
1: I would love to connect with your listeners. You can find me at colorcourageous.com, or you can also text me. You can text the word courage to 44144. When you do that, you'll get a sneak preview of all of the books longer than you'll find somewhere else. Um, Text courage to 44144. And we can also stay in touch that way.
0: Michelle Sanchez, thank you so much. Thank you for the gift that you're giving the church. Thank you for your work and God bless.
1: God bless you too.
0: You've been listening to Common Grace, a Garden City podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at info@gardencitynw.com. At if you want to support the podcast, please rate and review it or share it with your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to what Garden City is doing with this podcast, you can give at gardencitynw.com/give. Thanks for listening.